0: Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast.
2: Stephen, are we going to have to talk about Europe again?
1: Well, we could talk about the series of elections in the Republic of Ireland in uh, Super Tuesday. We could do that instead. Or we could do Europe.
2: We have to do Europe, don't we? Let's just reconcile ourselves to it. Also, can we just... Well, let's, let's have a brief moment of allowing ourselves a moment of gloating about Super Tuesday and the fact that our belief that Bernie Sanders was not in fact going to rise up in a populist Jeremy Corbyn like uprising and dethrone Hillary Clinton does appear to be so far borne out. By the numbers
1: yep it's it is this thing I find endlessly fascinating about u s elections, and they are covered fine by foreign correspondents who you know their readers don't find but they're covered by American correspondents if they've never done it before, so the crushing defeats that Sanders suffered last night and in South Carolina were entirely foretold in the Iowa data It's just that Iowa and New Hampshire don't look like The rest of America.
2: Well, can we also take a moment to say that I think America's problem, and I speak on behalf of my people here, is white people. They're making terrible choices. They either want unelectable left-wing candidates, or they want Donald Trump. It is only the black and Hispanic populations of the US that are making halfway sane decisions in this election.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... Because the the interesting thing is we're now at the weird stage of US elections where everyone starts quoting head-to-head polling, going, oh, but, you know, but... Trump beats Clinton. It's just like, well, maybe. I mean, I don't think that figure will be borne out uh, either. And also, it's really hard it's, to it's a, it's also from it's that, state by state. Yeah, it's a completely different college. set of elections. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think... I, I don't think it's so much that it's a problem with... I think that uh, the the problem with Sanders is that one actually the clinton years were phenomenal for for particularly for african americans in terms of employment in terms of uh, average income they you know they they were great years and there is a reason why uh, african americans remember those years fondly but the thing is, is actually Sanders' political narrative really only speaks to a certain section of white Americans. Uh, it's it's yeah you know, like oh you know you you're the graduate with no future. You can't get onto the housing ladder. You can't get into the best but that is just the African American reality, and it it always has been. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing about this graduate with no future in general. That their um, their aims are quite Tory, which is not a problem. It speaks to the kind of breaking down of the neoliberal model and it can't deliver the things that these people have traditionally wanted but it's actually a fairly conservative set of policy asks
2: but that does kind of suggest why things like right to buy were so popular in the 80s well they might start to lead before we move on to to europe grown is that in the 2012 election if only white men had voted Romney would have won every single state. He would have won every electoral college total sweep. Yeah. So you do have a very interesting demographic split in American politics between that is very hard between certain types of voters. Yeah. But what could be more thrilling than Europe? Uh, I, so I'm having I'm I'm, I'm really struggling. I'm re- I'm really struggling because I know that as journalists it is our duty to bring people facts, and yet the facts I tried catching up a bit of the, there was a sovereignty debate in the Commons. Um, I tried catching a bit of that. It was unbearable. Then there was some questioning of Matt Hancock about one of the government's ministers about this idea that um, they're not going to be people in Brexit supporting ministers are not going to be able to see civil service advice that they could then use to bash the government. And I just, I just can't, I, ju- I can't, I can't do it, Stephen. I can't do it.
1: So I have two points. One not serious, one serious. The not serious one is increasingly Brexit to me sounds like some kind of brand-based cereal that you might take if you're having trouble with your bowel
2: movements. Yeah, like, Start the day with Brexit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but, so I have actually bizarrely kind of got religion on, on the Europe debate. Now, I've I decided I am probably excited by it. Not because I'm losing my hair. I'm not, by the way. I'm really not. Um but uh yes i'm not like one of these bold men who's into europe but ultimately if if we were to leave the european union scotland would would certainly leave uh the united kingdom uh northern ireland would be thrown into financial chaos there could would potentially suddenly be a hard border between the uh the six counties and the rest of 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 the island um it would be a disaster sterling would tank and those are literally just the problems that we know about Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah, kind of. I think the problem is, is that Parliament so far, yeah, obviously journalists, we we make mistakes too. He said through gritted teeth, but Parliament, I think, is failing to get its hands round the size of the debate. Yeah, the kind of sovereignty question is, is so small bore compared to the kind of truly catastrophic implications of leaving the EU.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was talking to somebody who works in science and they said, you know, 99% of scientists support supposed saying staying in the EU because so many big scientific projects now, you know, something like the Large Hadron Collider in CERN has got do- dozens and dozens of nationalities of people working on it. Mm. You know, most times when people win a Nobel Prize now, you know, they're, they're as a result of kind of cross-border collaborations. So there are some really significant groups of people who aren't getting a, a hearing. My problem with the debate is that Uh, it's all just been shaved down into a sort of personality clash and that's i can see that's really tempting and i and i i'm loath to castigate anyone else doing this because i know that we have ended up ourselves have been guilty about seeing things through the prism of personality um in 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 left-wing politics but i just feel like framing it as cameron versus boris is just i just don't care enough about either of them that you know, and I am going. I am turning into that slightly sanctimonious left wing person that is kind of. I'm going to meet, My future, I feel, is very much leaving comments like saying, "What about Syria?" on Guardian articles about fashion. That's where I'm heading on this.
1: Well, there's only one cure for that: death.
2: <laughs> no, but I think it's really difficult because you know, from all the people that I've been talking to about this, I've been trying to talk to quote unquote normal people, and, and the thing that comes across really strongly is people just want facts, right? The newspapers are. Uh, you know, very partisan. They've already very much decided where they're going to stand. I can't really think of a newspaper. I mean, perhaps if the indie RIP were going to carry it, you wouldn't know quite which way that was going to back. But And I think it feels a lot like walking in on season five of uh, of a box set and all the characters are already established, all the plot lines and themes are already. People are referring to things that happened in season one that you, don't, you, don't, you weren't there for. That's how I think a lot of people feel about it. And that very rolling way that we do news, where we do it in micro-updates, particularly in politics, where we assume that everybody's been totally switched on, is really doing a disservice to Europe, when actually, has anyone heard the fundamental debate questions for 30, 40 years? No, and
1: it is, I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, one of the things I try to avoid doing, not just because I'm lazy, uh, but also because I don't think it serves the ordinary reader very well, is this kind of so-and-so says something on Twitter, everyone is very angry about it, Including the kind of second-order hot takes, which assume that everyone has already come to it. And I think, yeah, exactly that kind of... And it is also like season five, because it's a bit of a cruddy debate, really.
2: Well, the original showrunner has is left, isn't yeah. it? It's one of those. And then actually they've decided to introduce a kind of lesbian vampire character. Yeah. I'm thinking really true blood here. Yeah.
1: Speaking of uh, the original showrunner, the, the interesting thing I have noticed about this campaign is the way that... It has transformed the opinion of lots of Labour people about Cameron. Not in terms of his politics; they're still uh, strongly opposed to him. But I mean, someone who's working very closely with Stronger said to me uh, earlier today. Well, you know, I used to just think Cameron was was lucky, but I now realise you know he's incredibly hard working. He says exactly what. Um, yeah, he, yeah he, he sits and listens and goes, well, what are the problems we just have with me? What are the fears people have about leaving? What are the things we can do to... Ma-? Yeah, then they are kind of... Well,
2: there was that vignette, wasn't there, during the election of him sort of saying I want, you know, in a memo where he said, I want you to sort of physically attack me with the arguments that people are going to come against me to his aides. Whereas the portrait of Ed Miliband that was painted was Ed Miliband going, why, you know, why is everyone being so mean to me? Like, why can't anyone just be nice about things yeah. that I've said?
1: When Stan Greenberg presented him with polling about what people didn't like out of the Labour Party and he said, well, Stan, why do you have to be so negative? And Stan Greenberg, to his credit, did not at that point throw him out of the nearest window, which I think I would have found hard not to do.
2: What I think we should ask our podcast listeners to do is set us some homework. So you can get us both on Twitter at KB and at Helen Lewis. And what things do you actually, what factual things do you want to know? Because, you know, I am a SWAT. I love homework. If people ask me to go and find out specific things, then I will go and do that. And then I think that's how we should do it. Which For the next couple of weeks, we should actually provide actual facts about Europe and and try and do it in a way that doesn't make everyone want to cry okay cool
3: hi I'm Caroline and I'm Anna and we host the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman seriously if you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn this is the podcast
2: for you you can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash s-r-s-l-y
1: and now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George.
0: So Jeremy Corbyn appeared at the Parliamentary Labour Party for the first time this year on Monday, and it's fair to say that expectations were low, and that in many ways he fell below them. One shadow minister that told me afterwards, "If I've gave a presentation like that to my constituency party members, would be justified." In deselecting me, um, his ten minutes address opened by uh, noting that membership membership had doubled since the the general election. He spoke about the Lords defeat of tax credit cuts, which was of course uh, last October, so quite a, a distant event now. What Labour MPs would ideally have wanted was a big picture. Uh, address on the EU referendum, on global economic uncertainty, and on Labour's strategy and uh, plan to win the May local elections. And they didn't get that.
1: Um, There's a perception, I think, that the Parliamentary Labour Party is sort of full of, uh, it's kind of a, well, the term uses insurrectionary unit in your column this week. Is that fair?
0: No, in that if you're talking about most MPs, most MPs are not Sort of on the on the point of of rebellion, they moan about Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, most of them certainly consider him to be unelectable, um, but they're in no mood to to launch a challenge. Uh, most of them hope, in the words of one Corbyn critic, that something will happen, but uh, that they won't really have to do uh, any of the work. Um, something will something will turn up, uh, and of course we've seen this in the past when Labour MPs moaned about. Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband. Um, But when it came to a challenge, a lot of them bottled it, and, of course, only really tried to move uh, six months before the general election when they started panicking about losing their seats. Um, Those opposed to Corbyn still don't have an agreed candidate. Some of the names going rounds are um, Angela Eagle, uh, Lisa Nandy, who was described by one MP as on massive manoeuvres, Uh, Dan Jarvis, who's giving a speech um, on the economy soon in advance of the budget. Um, And uh, Owen Smith and uh, Chukwamuna. And um, the other person who is being spoken of as as, as a potential future leader, though not uh, or not gladly uh, by by Corbyn's critics, is uh, John McDonnell, uh, the shadow chancellor.
1: Yeah, I mean... Why are people talking up McDonald? Obviously, it's something we've mentioned on the NS website a couple of times, but it's started to gain currency not just on the left, but throughout the Labour Party.
0: So what MPs have told me is that McDonald is now in every significant internal meeting uh, on policy and strategy across the piece. And there's some debate about why this is. Some say it's because of the toll the job has taken on Corbyn, physically and, and intellectually, that he needs... That he needs Macdonald, who was always has always been the senior partner in their their relationship. He stood unsuccessfully for the leadership in two thousand and seven and and two thousand and ten. That he needs him to to be there to support him. Uh, in the words of one MP, he just can't do it on his own. But others speculate that there's a, a deal or a tacit understanding between Corbyn and Macdonald that uh, if Corbyn is is challenged and and removed, then Macdonald would try to take over. Um or that Corbyn will voluntarily step down at some point and hand the leadership to uh to his great ally, the, the Shadow Chancellor. And of course, Ken Livingston, who's very close to the Corbyn Project, gave an interview to um Anushin in The New Statesman recently, in which he said that um you know McDonnell is is the the leader in waiting if anything happens to Corbyn, and uh, also that he hopes to change the nomination rules um so that a candidate of the left would no longer be required to get the nomination of, of a certain percentage of MPs and, and MEPs and could get on the ballot with, with just a few supporters. And that, of course, would remove what most see as, as the biggest hurdle to McDonnell winning.
1: Um, one thing which could obviously happen, which might change the situation, is the coming local elections in which Labour is not expecting to do as well as an opposition would hope to do at this stage. John Trickett gave a presentation at the PLP meeting. How did that go down?
0: So that wasn't very well received. Um, he was asked, um, why aren't we targeting any Tory councils? Um, he conceded that the Tories' attack on on Labour for endangering economic and, and national security was proving effective. i said that Labour's riposte would be, we'll stand up for you. Uh, most weren't, weren't convinced by that. They didn't think there was a, a clear strategy. And um, the presentation itself was was described as rather shambolic to me. And Labour's regional boards have been sent a list of 16 councils to, to focus on. All of them are currently held by the party, which shows that it's very much a, a defensive campaign. The last time an opposition failed to gain seats at a local election in a non-general election year was 1982. Uh, but it helps that expectations are so low. It helps that Sadiq Khan is still likely to win the London mayoral election, which uh, happens at, at, at the same time. It helps that it's still relatively early in Corbyn's leadership. He hasn't even been in the job for a year. And most MPs will feel it is fair to to give him more time. And it also helps that, as I said, there isn't an agreed candidate. and uh, Most fear, a lot of critics fear that, were Corbyn challenged, were he to automatically be on the ballot, as most expect, there's a reasonable chance that he could win by an even bigger margin than in September. A lot of, uh, a significant number of members who didn't vote for him have left the party. Uh, more left-leaning ones have joined since. And were that to happen, his leadership would, of course, be be strengthened and they wouldn't be able to launch another challenge, um, possibly for, for a few years. So that is seen as the risk. And it's these conversations which are... Taking place ahead of um, what all sides expect to be a bad set of results. All right. Thank you, and talk to you next week. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule
3: Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: And it's time now to talk about the Oscars and indeed films more generally with Anna Liskovitz on loan from the Seriously podcast. Hiya. (laughs) Um, Anna, we made you do something slightly unfair, which is that we made you stay up all night to watch the Oscars. So I'm guessing by the time they were handing out like best foreign short you were in a kind of (laughs) slightly diabetic coma from having to eat too many revels to keep you awake. yeah I was actually able to keep all my snacks in my
3: eye bags though by that point so (laughs) it was fine uh no I actually really enjoyed it it was fun to watch I think mainly because this year was a bit more surprising maybe than other years like
2: it was less like oh another award for Birdman or whatever I think it's astonishing when I was thinking about it quite how many awards the entertainment industry gives itself and then I thought <laughs> journalists are in no place yeah, to complain about not. this. For, if, they're a, an, if they're a profession that gives itself more awards than journalism, yeah. then yeah, maybe acting is just about it. Uh, speaking
1: of which. Uh... Have you... Anna was recently shortlisted for a w- <laughs> <Thank> as <Steven. laughs> uh, Indeed Was I, which I imagine our listeners may have forgotten since the last time I mentioned it.
2: That's good. Unfortunately, our listeners can't vote for either of you, can they? So, I mean, I mean it's, nice, it's nice to mention it.
1: But on the subject uh, at hand, can we talk about how bad Birdman is?
2: Yeah, I really, when Stephen said, let's talk about the Oscars, I thought, am I just going to hijack this to bring up all my grievances <laughs> with Birdman? <laughs> because what happened was that I thought, oh, it's like, I don't know what made me watch it. Actually, I don't mm, know because it sounds you...
1: cool. It's like a, a, a Bruce, Bruce Keaton, not Bruce. Keaton. <laughs>
3: Is it a bird? Is it a man? Keaton. It's Birdman.
1: As a washed-up actor who used to play a superhero, who hears the superhero talking to him, who's trying to do a serious film, it suggests that it would be a fun, clever, enjoyable movie that was not boring to watch.
2: I guess I yeah, I guess I sort of thought it might have a bit of the flavor of Jessica Jones in that sort of mm. su- sort of sullen, misanthropic superhero-y kind of thing. And I also thought it might have a bit of the postmodernism of like Watchmen, for example. You know, about the whole I I think I maybe I thought it was more super heroic than it in fact <laughs> yeah. turned out to be. So I also this is another thing. It's the big gimmick of Birdman is that it's filmed in a continuous pan, right? And then there are a couple of things that are then sewn together digitally. So it looks like it is just you are just following one person around. Mm. I sort of Didn't entirely get that because I watched it at home and I may have spent quite a lot of time on my phone. (laughs) Making cups of tea. I I, I watched it in a cinema,
1: and I think if I hadn't watched it in a cinema, I would not have got to the end. I didn't pick up on the fact it was a continuous shot. I also... I'm always a bit dubious of films where, like, oh, well, the selling point is something... It's a bit like Avatar, which the big selling point was, oh, the graphics, but it's a boring Pocahontas remake than, than... but once again, if I hadn't been watching in the cinema, I would have walked out of because it was, it was so dull. Yeah.
2: The other thing is the drumming. The drumming is ins- the drumming reminds me of why I have a, a deep hatred of jazz. It just That drumming began to feel like every time someone has tried to co- engage me in a conversation about how jazz is actually a lot more <laughs> musical than types of music that feature actual music. Hey, jazz is great. Well, no, I I'm, Yeah, some jazz is great. The jazz drumming of Birdman's score, can you defend that?
1: No, but I, there's no aspect of Birdman I would defend. I haven't actually seen The Revenant, but uh, mm. Anna, you have you've seen Birdman as well, right? I
3: haven't seen Birdman, and don't. I think I'm not going to I, I think to I wish which I... do you think was worse than <laughs> Well, I can't imagine a film that I would have disliked much more than The Revenant, and I don't want to be like it is the worst film ever made, because as discussed, the director has like some very interesting technical
2: abilities that are cool, but technical so he filmed it in natural light only, didn't he? Which necessitated for filming for like two hours every afternoon yeah and that was kind of it
3: yeah that's what uh leonardo, leonardo dicaprio was talking about in his speech when he sort of went off on one about climate change at the oscars was the fact that they kind of had to chase sort of the light and the weather quite insanely around the world um but yeah so and there are some quite good like very long shots it's obviously not like birdman and it, it, it is not all one shot but there are these like quite interesting like fight scenes where you're like following the action round in one long track shot But, um, oh God, apart from that, I really felt like it was like that feeling when you're in a meeting with too many men who want to talk for too long. And you're kind of like stood at the side of the room like, hmm, where's this going? Like, probably time to wrap it up now, guys. Like, that's The Revenant. Just in a film. Like, the the first She was giving
2: you a look like, no, I've never been in that meeting. If you think you've never been in that meeting, you were that meeting. (laughs) I haven't. No, I was. (laughs)
3: Yeah, it is. It's very much like that. Like the, ve- I remember the opening shot of the Revenant is like the camera panning upstream, and like literally about thirty seconds into that shot, I was like, hmm, "Found some stuff you could cut already, guys. <laughs> like bustle <laughs> <laughs> just <this> along. <laughs> trim this,
1: trim yeah, this a bit." I mean, to to sound like a an old fogey, we um we've recently been rewatching lots of film from the nineties. I don't quite know why. I think just somehow we we have and one. One of the many shocking things is how uh, how progressive Jurassic Park is compared to how sexist Jurassic World is mm. uh, is is slightly startling. But also how short all of the like. These 90 minute films where you're like, do you know what that film didn't need? An extra hour or so.
3: Yeah, it's a bit like some of the conversations people have about long form journalism. This idea that long form journalism is inherently good journalism. Yeah. This idea that like rambling man film is inherently good film. Never mind the quality, me. fill the girth. It's
2: like kind yeah. of like, and it. but I also think it's about something being kind of definitive, isn't it? It's about the idea that long form you have to be like, this is the piece. This is the piece mm. in which I entirely explain baseball forever. And and I think the films kind of for to that. And I think I I just think there is a, I think they get bloated if if people aren't.
1: Yeah, I mean, my heart always sinks when it's like an American long read where it's like notionally about like I don't know drones and it begins like. Dwight Schultz is a tobacco maker in West Virginia. And you're like, oh God, how long am I gonna be expected to endure before I get to whatever the point of this piece ostensibly is?
3: Yeah, and it's like The Revenant, which is you know, supposedly a revenge film, a revenge piece about, you know, some guy avenging his son's murder. And when it was like I an was hour about in and the son was a bear. Yeah, that's part of it. But like literally an hour in when his son is still alive, I was like Does the bear kill his son or is No, the bear like mauls his face a bit.
1: So why is the bear such a... The
3: bear like basically makes him unable to stop his son's murder. So that's why the bear is important because he's like in such... So does he not actually successfully
1: avenge his son?
3: No, that's basically... Then he has to, like, crawl out of a grave they've buried him in him, him in after him being attacked by the bear. I don't mean to be rude, but even this is boring me. <laughs> it's really Are you dumb. saying
1: that this conversation is unbearable? <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: the most interesting thing about The Revenant is the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio's publicist made a statement saying that he was not raped by a
2: bear during the making of the film, which involved a CGI bear. But this is the other... Wow, okay... <laughs> but this is but that brings me very neatly to the thing that I think is is my inherent problem with the Oscars, which is that it, it features rich, thin, attractive, wealthy, usually white, off you know, people who get applauded. <laughs> who get applauded for like, cripping up, you know, like gendering up. Um, yeah. In uh, the case of Charlize Theron, you know, like looking like a like slightly skankying up. You know, that's like that's the thing that gets you your Oscar, right? Is... I have to defend Charlize Theron though, because didn't she famously she watched her stepdad murder her mother? When she, she was, no, she yes. didn't, and I think, but but there was there is a real trend of the fact that you know, like. Um... Eddie Redmayne got his um, his his theory of everything, and then he kind of came back for another bite at the cherry. <laughs> by okay, this time I'm going to put a, a dress on, and that's mm. actually really hard for a male actor to do to be seen like that. You know, it's really because uh, they you know they struggle for a really long time to cast that the Danish girl, and I just think it's slightly... and they
1: settled on Eddie
2: Redmayne. Well, <laughs> yeah. but they I it, it, just sort of slightly offensive to the rest of us to living normal more more lives to disabled people to trans people to yeah slightly puffy faced people that this is considered to be such a horrifying thing to do that you deserve praise for it yeah, yeah I think
1: I'm willing to forgive Monster because it's such a good film mm. um, I think my problem is is that there are a lot of films including films I love like I mean so A Single Man I think is, is a beautiful 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 film but it is basically a, a particularly lovely catalogue with a quite nice kind of short story about mm. uh, a man grieving for his husband um, kind of tacked on but most of these sort of films, where the central actor is just going, "Look, I've done something a bit different. Please give me an Oscar now," are effectively like a variety show, more than their the, yeah. You know, the, but that's you know, gaying up, isn't it? Yeah. And that's
2: again, that's Colin Firth, isn't it? A single man. Yeah. Um, so an, an actor who has been married for many years to a woman doing it. And I'm—I have a difficult relationship with the whole. You should cast an X actor to play X because sometimes it seems doesn't to, always work. Yeah, it seems to ignore the concept of acting as a as a fundamental thing. But it did feel that it's—it does seem very odd that essentially, like I say, very wealthy white men get huge amounts of applause for sort of dabbling with, with yeah the it's idols. the same
3: specific set of people that are get, that are reaping <clears throat> the rewards for these performances it's a funny thing though because Leonardo DiCaprio his my favorite role of his is what's eating Gilbert mm. Grape which I think is an amazing performance so he plays a young person with cerebral palsy my brother has very severe cerebral palsy and watching that performance was just shocking to me because it was so accurate and I would love for him to have won an award for that but I can completely understand at the same time why people would be like There are plenty of actors out there with cerebral palsy who are looking for roles and they're few and far between, and that would have been a great one for them to have. So I see both sides of the argument, really. But the main problem is that, as you say, it's the same group of people that are getting rewarded for these performances time after time. I
2: was really surprised to see an infographic about the number of the top 100 best paid... uh, Caroline Crampton had it in her newsletter, the top 100 most paid actors and how many of them have never acted in a single film with a female director
3: yeah that was an amazing this was in Cosmopolitan right yeah. they did a really great
2: investigative sort of piece about it where they so like so Brad Pitt the only female director he's ever worked for was it's last year with his wife <laughs> yeah um, whereas David uh... Oh, I can't remember. Swimmer? No, um, the, from Selma. Um, he has done four in a row, including Arva DuVernay, who's one of the only black female d- yeah. directors out there. And he said, you know, come on, this is up to... It's up to the men who've got the power in the industry, you know, lobby for this. Like, try and... When you're putting together a slate of directors, try and put, you know... Put a few wild cards on there and at least consider them. At least let them get through the door to you know, then be rejected. And the idea that there's actually a
3: responsibility on people who are already successful to kind of be like, you know what, I'm going to work with women directors now from this point onwards for like the next four films I make or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's something that you have to make a conscious decision to do. They're not necessarily just going to like come to you and, and, you know, overcome all these obstacles necessarily on their own. So... That but was feeds really that feeds into that
2: debate about. So I thought Chris Rock was a pretty good host from the bits that I, I'd seen, and I thought it was good that he took on head-on Oscar so white as a controversy. But I think it's it's a really it's an extra unfair burden on black actors that they should have to be the ones that are constantly talking about ethnic diversity. In the same way, I think it's a really tough to expect you know women to go away and sort of sort out the pay gap.
3: Yeah, and it and it also ends up kind of pigeonholing them into like spokespeople for diversity. Which isn't fair because it's everyone's problem, right? And it benefits yeah. everyone if we have a more diverse, you know, entertainment yeah. industry. Yeah, I
1: mean, I think so. I haven't watched it at all because I'm super prepared. Um, but um, I have bizarrely read a lot of the reviews of uh, Chris Rock's performance, and I did feel it was simply kind of like, oh, you know, he, he, you know, should have tackled it more, or he should have done X, or more like, it's like, but it's not actually Chris, job. Chris Rock's job to like stand up and it's like, and be the outlet for every. I I feel like the word grievance has this connotation that it's not a legitimate grievance, which I think, in this case, it is a completely legitimate Mm. grievance. But it's not his job to kind of be the spokesperson for everything Hollywood has done wrong Mm. uh, for minority and...
3: um, And um, I I thought he was great. I think he was very consistently on on that topic the entire... You know, it's a really long ceremony, and he was constantly addressing it, and his last words all night were Black Lives Matter. So, you, you know, that's pretty...
2: I Big felt stuff. his I felt his bit about the asking women more on the red carpet I sort of wanted to go and explain the concept of patriarchy to, to Chris Rock, but I feel like maybe that would have been difficult for him yeah, to work there into, were a few... into a joke set, set up. Well, of course, women yeah. do end up wearing more different things because women <laughs> are encouraged to display themselves more. No, and he it certainly wasn't PC lolesome. all night,
3: you know, and there were there was that um, the joke that involved Asian stereotypes where they got three, um, like, young Asian children on the stage and were like, oh, these are accountants. And, you know, a lot of people were upset by that. He by by no means was like Mr. Progressive all night. Mm. But then, I guess, why would we expect that of him yeah I was say, have
2: these people not ever seen any yeah, previous Christmas exactly. material why, would, why mm. would you expect that of him um, Stephen can you name a film that is worse than Birdman
1: Oh yes yes okay. I can go on uh, people will be familiar with my number one rule which is never to watch a film with Adam Sandler in it <laughs> uh, don't write in Adam Sandler fans I got your eat pray love or whatever the suggestion was and I am Probably going to watch it at some point, but I haven't yet.
2: Punch Drunk Love.
1: Punch Drunk Love is apparently apparently (laughs) semi-okay.
2: That's the the serious Adam Sandler Um, film. I also do not watch Adam Sandler films.
1: But I think the worst film I've seen is um, actually, I'm going for a controversial one: Forrest Gump.
2: (gasps) No, you're not. Get out.
1: I think Forrest Gump is almost the as worst bad film as ever film.
2: made. Do you think it's Forrest Gump? No, I'm just
1: listing bad films. I don't <laughs> think it's the worst film ever made, um, but it just actually, goes on. Actually, now I think so about it, I, I,
2: I worry that I haven't seen Forrest Gump for ten years, and that actually now it would just be like it would actually be slightly like when we rewatched Friends, and you were like, "Wow, Friends is kind of weirdly freaked out by the concept of gay people." I never really got that in the 1990s. I think it's just
1: mawkish, and it goes on too long, and. I mean, there are there must be a worse film than Birdman, um, because I mean, I think Birdman probably felt worse than it was because I expected to enjoy it. Uh, whereas I imagine if I ever do end up watching the the Revenant, I mean, I'm going to be disappointed. I literally did think it was two hours of a man fighting a bear. No, it's uh, more two
3: hours of a man cope coping with the wounds after being attacked by a bear and also climbing inside a horse for no discernible reason. I'm just going to put a
2: shout out here for Deadpool, which I know you are all resistant to watching, but you really that is like that's like two much ma- two hours of a man fighting a bear but making sassy wisecracks on the side of it Mm, i don't know if i like sass um anna is there a film that you can name that is worse than the revenant
3: maybe mistress america i'm a mistress america hater sorry everyone who likes that film
2: um and in your opinion what should have won best picture this year (laughs) Uh, my,
3: my best picture of the year which i think should have won best picture of the oscars was magic mike xxl
2: I haven't seen that, but I've seen a lot of screen grabs on that, because Zoe Margolis gave a talk in which she showed how it was a very important uh, (laughs) sign of the the male, no, the female gaze. We did a panel together
3: on it, uh, and it's just the best film ever. Like, you have to go. Room and Carol were my favourites over Spotlight, but I I was pretty happy with Spotlight.
1: My loathing of Room will have to be the subject of another podcast, Uh, but... um, I thought Carol or Joy. Carol- I thought I really liked Joy. I know that there are.
2: Hmm, what is the magic thread that links together Room, Carol, and Joy, mm-hmm. ladies? Mm-hmm. Is it that they are focused on female experiences? Um, I, that's going I'm, I'm gonna end on my angry conspiracy theory. Last year, I mean, last year, Ian Leslie wrote a brilliant book, a uh, blog for us about the fact that you know, Whiplash was drumming man, American Sniper was sniping man. That one with Steve Carell was ba- basketballing man. Like they were just, they were just very heavily <laughs> centered on, on male experience and um and that's i seem to have continued this year yeah buy our bags <laughs> watch magic mike xxl and deadpool do not watch forrest gump again in case it turns out to be rubbish like steven says <laughs> this
0: is a manhattan-bound b express train the next stop is grand street
2: mind the gap hey i'm john
3: i'm barbara and we present Skylines, the new podcast from city metric the new statesman's urbanism site
1: every two weeks you can hear us talk about cities geography and the human impact on the environment and test our contention that maps make a great topic for radio
3: you can find us on itunes or acast
1: check it out
2: Welcome to You Ask Us, the section where you ask us. Um, Stephen, this week I've got a really simple one that someone, well, actually many people have asked me, which is, is it just me or is politics really boring at the moment? Um, I think there's a sense that basically the government has paused everything to have its three months long inter row about Europe. Is that fair? Are there things coming up in Parliament that we just don't know about that? I just aren't getting any coverage.
1: Well, there are a couple of, I don't want to say small, because they're all in their their way quite important, but they're things which, for one reason or another, don't have many sort of moving parts, as it were. There's the trade union bill, where the lords keep chopping off some of the worst bits, and then it shunts back to the commons, and... Um, and obviously the trade union bill has fairly apocalyptic consequences for the Labour Party and its funding and will transform, among other things, the size of the permanent Labour Party. I mean, they are probably going to end up losing about half of their staff, and no organisation loses half of its staff and is materially the same. But
2: it's okay then, because they will have what, forty fewer seats from the boundary review?
1: Yeah. So Yeah, it's it's fairly it's fairly bleak. Um but and the, no
2: one apart from the SNP will have a seat in Scotland right then once if, if
1: no partly because current well the, no the lib dems will keep orkney because it's yeah. a historical because the boundary changes are particularly toxic for you if you're a liberal democrat because your majority is entirely personal it's about oh you pointed at my bins oh you stopped me getting deported um I don't really know why I decided to equate those two things with uh, as as if they were <laughs> the of equal importance. Two major importance. concerns of the British um, electorate. But you know those those yeah like if you if you get someone's bins fixed they're likely to vote for you if you stop them being deported they're really keen to to keep you in office because you've obviously t- transformed their life prospects. Um but the second your boundaries change you've got a bunch of people whose bins you have neither fixed or whose lives you have improved for the better mm. and if you're a Lib Dem that's really all you've got. So that is fairly catastrophic. But Because there's not really a fight because the Conservatives have a majority of 12 and um, it doesn't affect very many people other than the eight Liberal Democrats or Labour Party staffers. At the moment, neither of those issues have become acute. And then there is the WASPy campaign, which is about a a, a legal change, which means that women uh, do much worse out of their pensions than they should. Uh, that I think is something which will probably ignite at some point but I think we're still at the stage when people don't think it will affect them.
2: Pensions I think generally are going to be a flashpoint aren't they I mean you've got the review coming up there's been stuff in the papers about people working till they're 75 and and actually pensions the pensions age having to rise faster than life expectancy and I think that adds to that narrative which I know is quite controversial about feeling that you know the the current generation of pensioners that's the high watermark of how great it's going to be to be a pensioner i mean the median pensioner is uh, is better off than the median worker like, mm. there's less inequality in income in pensioners actually yeah. um and there are, i think more working age people in poverty now than pensioners as a proportion for the first time
1: yeah yeah and, and yeah and the kind of the the efforts to reduce pension poverty her, her, under the last government, have proved stickier than the ones to reduce working poverty, which the Conservatives have been more successful at unpicking. Uh, so yeah, you are much better off being a pensioner. Although in some ways, exactly, you say it's kind of... Historically, we may depressingly look back on that when this is brief phenomena, because when Lloyd George introduced the pension, it was set well, below, well, sorry, well above life expectancy. The difficulty with this idea people have of, oh, you'll just work forever, is that a lot of people who get past retirement age wouldn't be able they're living much longer but they're living because we've got better at stopping people dying from heart attacks uh you can't really go back and do your job after summer like after surviving a major heart attack in the same way so um yeah it's big and scary
2: isn't it rather than necessarily and also you know what happens for you know manual workers for example i think this is really interesting when i was at the mail, we were trying to commission a piece about somebody about retiring. We were looking around for somebody to talk about, you know, why it's great to retire. And of course, none of the older columnists retire. Like you look around the papers, you have people who are 67, 68, 70, still writing a column because writing a column in your slippers in your North London house is something that you can absolutely still do when you're yeah. 70s. Even you know, even if you're not physically as able as you you once were. Being a bricklayer is not that. Being an Uber driver is not that. Um, and so, Okay, so we've got trade unions, we've got pension changes, anything else? Um, anything
1: but that—that that is, to be honest, about it, because mostly the government is effectively on a general election footing. It is the official position of the government, albeit not the position of many in the Conservative Party, to keep Britain in Europe, and everything they are doing is being pointed towards that aim, which is why the government is trying to do as few things as possible to irritate Anyone, because they don't want to have a, a tax credit style disaster two months before
2: being out. We've got another three months
1: to go. I mean, there are many fascinating subplots in in Osborne's next budget. One is he's under so much political pressure. Two is that the economy looks like it's getting worse. Three, of course, is his targets still haven't been met. But the fourth is that is he really going to want to implement a large sort of wave of austerity How many months before this crucial vote for both him and David Cameron's future it's not that likely
2: I just think there's absolutely no upside for him as it turns out there is no downside to him breaking his promises as we've seen over subsequent budgets mm. it's not like he's going to get attacked by the SNP by Labour by the Lib Dems for being insufficiently you know cruel yeah cruel and tax-cutting uh, and and it, he will get he would absolutely get away with it. So I wouldn't be surprised if another kind of couple of billion turns up behind the sofa like last time, and and magically the pace of cuts gets slowed again. Mm. Well, um, it, yeah. Well, I guess we'll just have to find uh, things that aren't Europe to talk about again. That could be our our shout out to our listeners this week. If there are other bits of politics you feel are being ignored in the great European brouhaha, then do tweet us and let us know. <coughs> been listening to the new statesman podcast presented by me helen lewis with stephen bush our producer is india bork and our music is devil with a devil by the underscore orchestra licensed under creative commons you can find us on itunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast